Hey everybody, welcome to Creepy Kentucky. I'm Quinn. And I'm Laura, and today we are going to talk about something that has only ever happened in the state of Kentucky. And that is the assassination of a sitting governor. So this is all about the assassination of Governor William Goebel. So I'm going to start with a little background information. And we're also going to have a special guest later on that I recorded a couple weeks ago. Um, we have now, I mean, we might as well just admit it. We, we have our own uh, historical advisor we do we have a history advisor his name is ron duncan and he is awesome and wonderful and he we went to frankfurt a couple weeks ago and unfortunately i'm very sad about this i was very sad at the time i'm still sad uh quinn was not able to hi quinn was not able to accompany me but uh we are hi dom hi (laughs) I wish I was. <laughs> <laughs> so we were not. She was not able to accompany me, but Ron and I talked about uh, what had happened to Governor Goebel on the spot of where it happened, and then we're going to finish up with the aftermath of the assassination. So, um, so first of all, his parents, William and Anna, were immigrants from Hanover in Germany. Uh, their son Wilhelm. <laughs> Wilhelm, Wilhelm uh, was born in Pennsylvania on January 24th, 1855. Um, although it was not true that he was born in Germany, as his political opponents claimed sometimes, his upbringing did emphasize uh, German ways and customs. Hi. What are we researching now? It's the, the only governor who's ever been assassinated is from Kentucky. <laughs> Because, of course. Because, of course, he was. (laughs) Uh, For instance, he only spoke German until he was six. Yeah. And he was mostly raised by his mother while his father was away fighting for the North during the Civil War. So this quote-unquote foreign background led to distrust of him as a Kentucky politician. Although you will hear there are other reasons not to trust him. They better leave the shit alone. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So after his father returned from the war, the family moved to Covington. We don't know why the family moved, but we do know that the father held several jobs in the area. Also that William was used to earning a living to help out the family at a very young age. Yeah, yeah. His father wanted him to become a jeweler, so he apprenticed with a local jeweler, but he decided he'd rather be a lawyer, because they make more money. <laughs> Why would you want your son to be a jeweler? I don't know. <laughs> I mean... I mean, I don't... <laughs> anyway... So, his <coughs> apprentice was one of the most powerful lo- local lawyers in the Cincinnati area. And this man's name was John White Stevenson. And Stevenson was at various times Kentucky governor, Kentucky lieutenant governor, congressman, state, legislat- state legislator. At that particular time, he was a U.S. senator. And eventually, Goebel became Stevenson's law partner and executor. So, he also attained the patronage of another powerful man whose name was John G. Carlyle. 
And he became Speaker of the House of Representatives in 1883. And at the time, uh, at that time, Goebel was a junior partner in his law firm. Uh, eventually, Carlisle became a senator and then Secretary of the Treasury, although by that time, the two men had parted ways. So I think he, he apprenticed with Stevenson. He worked with Carlisle, and then he went back to Stevenson okay. at one point. But um, who knows, really? Um, Goebel was considered an excellent attorney. He specialized in railroad and corporate law, and he boasted that he'd never had a jury return a verdict against him in any of the lawsuits he'd filed against the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, which was his big... That was his big... That was his arch enemy. Yeah, his <laughs> nemesis. His, yeah. Yeah. That was his uh, gym coach. <laughs> for, all, for all you uh, what we do in the shadow fans. That was his gym coach. <laughs> in one case, he did not get as much money as he thought he would for a woman who had a relative die in a train accident. Uh, so he charged her a reduced fee for her services. Well, that was nice. Uh, of him. Yeah, she was so grateful. She named her child after him. <laughs> I mean, uh, he had a reputation for working for poor people, which he did. But opponents claim he exploited them, which he really didn't. But he didn't go poor either. Like okay. he worked on their behalf, but he didn't like kill. Like he didn't kill himself. Yeah, he wasn't in the poorhouse himself. Um, he was, for example, by 1899, his income was around $25,000, which in today's terms is over $775,000. Oh, so he so did not go poor. He was all right. But he was always well-read in the law. He was always well-read on the trial. Like, he was well-prepared. When he went into court, he knew what he was, like, he knew what so he to, was a yeah. good, he good was, lawyer. Yeah, he's a good lawyer. Uh, his personal existence was very spartan. When he wasn't working, his time was spent reading about law, about cases, about politics. He had little or no interest in sports, the theater, or, as I like to call it, the ladies. Because every time I say the ladies, I have to say it that way. I apologize to everyone. The ladies. Um, He was married to the job. He was married to his job, yeah. Ron and I talked about it, and we were like, I think he just, like, I think that was his thing. Like, he was interested in power. He was interested in, like, I don't think he was even as interested in money, but he was interested in power, yeah. and he wanted that. So, yeah. Uh, his political career began in 1887 when a state senate seat opened up. So, Kentucky politics at the time was in a state of turmoil, suggesting that at least in some ways things haven't changed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I put that down, because I was, yeah. <laughs> Not to get all political, but yeah. the 1800s is probably yeah. when Mitch McConnell Also. <laughs> yeah. He probably knew Goebel. Probably did. Probably a close personal yeah. friend. Probably was. So, and also I want to say, like, there's Democrats and Republicans in the story, but there are, 18, there are 1890 and 1900 Democrats and Republicans, so don't get upset. Alright. Uh, so the state at the time was in the control of the Democratic Party, which is a situation which had come about as a result of how Republicans and their policies were perceived during and after the Civil War. Uh, and although several strong Republican leader, leaders had emerged, usually even though the Democrats were kind of split, they usually coalesced enough during, like, for voting uh, purposes to actually elect like, the Democrat who was on the ticket. 
Um, also at this time, there was a lot of tension between farmers and the railroads. Uh, during this time, tobacco grew to be the main crop in Kentucky, which meant the farmers were dependent on one market for their income. And if something happened to that market, then whole like whole families, whole towns could be Oof. severely infected. Yeah. Not infected, affected, although, you know. Um, Meanwhile, the railroads grew and grew because not only logically at the time they were the smart way to transport everything, um, also they often paid little to no tax and got incentives to run certain lines to certain cities. Oh, well. So, yeah. Um, so it was expected that Goebel, who ran as a Democrat, uh, would win easily. But... He faced unexpected opposition from an upstart political party, and this was called the Union Labor Party. Uh, it was made up, uh, pulled members from several unions, from other progressive parties, from socialists, and even anarchists, cool. of all things. Uh, some of the people who normally would have voted for Goebel were drawn away from him, uh, especially as he had to cleave to the Democratic Party platform. Because he ran that way. Yeah. And he ended up winning the election by 56 votes. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, Goebel had two years left in the four-year term in which to make an impression. So he decided to go after the railroads, specifically the Louisville Nationale, as we, yeah. His, uh, his arch nemesis. Yeah. <laughs> it was a huge and successful business operating all over the South at that point, not just Louisville and Nashville. Um, legislature, le legislators who favored the railroads, they wanted to get rid of the Railroad Commission, which, um, like, or, like, re regulated the railroads at least somewhat. Uh, they actually passed a bill to do so and sent it to the state Senate. Uh, a man who we're going to talk about later named Cassius Clay, not Muhammad Ali, but <laughs> actually the guy he was named after. Okay. Yeah, suggested a commission to study railroad companies' lobbying practices. Oh. So Goebel served on the commission, which found several irregularities by lobbyists. Uh, he also helped defeat the bill to get rid of the railroad commission. Uh, this made Goebel popular in his district, uh, so he won re-election twice, the second time by a three-to-one margin. Ooh. Uh, Goebel was chosen to be on the commission to write Kentucky's fourth constitution. Although it was considered a great honor to be part of this, <laughs> Goebel only showed up two-fifths of the time. <laughs> I mean, he was busy studying law. Yeah, and not... Having anything to do with sports, movies, the theater, or, well, not movies, obviously, because they haven't been invented. <laughs> or the ladies. Or the ladies. <laughs> so, yeah. Plus, he ensured that the Rail Commission was included in the Constitution, and it can only be removed by an amendment voted on by the people. So the legislature can't just up and get rid of it. Okay. Uh, okay. So, he had several enemies. By this time. Because his personality, not just that he was a Democrat, so obviously Republicans weren't going to like him anyway. Yeah. He had several, his personality was kind of, well, I mean, what the one place called it was prickly. <laughs> he had a okay. prickly personality. Okay, so he was um, kind of an asshole. So he had, yeah. So he had several uh, enemies. Uh, he had... 
one particular one named John Sanford. Oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is who you warned yeah. me about. Yeah. yeah, just get ready. This is a ride. A... Let me just say, this is a ride. Uh, so he was, Sanford was a former Confederate general who became a banker, so he was not the kind of person that Goebel was going to like in the first place. No. Uh, so they had been enemies for a while. Goebel had cost Sanford money. She's making a hard face at you. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to have my hands up. <laughs> so Goebel had cost Sanford money by removing the tolls from some of Kentucky's roads. And Sanford had supposedly then ensured that Goebel was not appointed to the court, Kentucky Court of Appeals. Uh, Goebel was so furious <laughs> about this <laughs> that he wrote a newspaper article on Sanford where he called Sanford Gonorrhea John. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm just saying... When I read that, I was looking for some way to make this interesting, like, this, this first part interesting to me. When I read that, I was like, I have my white whale. <laughs> this and is I, it. This I is... remember you asked, like, how do you spell gonorrhea? <laughs> this, is, this is it. This is what it was. It's interesting now. now. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> I was like, I found it. Gonorrhea It's my John. ring. It's my ring. Uh, on April 11th, 1895, Goebel and Attorney General Jack Hendricks were walking towards Stanford's bank to cash a check. Uh, they met up with Frank Helm, who was a president of a rival bank, and Helm said, no, go, go cash this check at my bank. Um, so, but Stanford was standing on the steps of his bank, and he saw them, they saw him, uh, he approached them, which was uh, a huge mistake on his part. Um, so he asked Goebel if uh, Goebel was the author of the Gonorrhea John article, and Goebel said yes. Uh, two shots were fired. At first, no one knew what had happened, and then Sanford fell to the ground. Oh. He'd been shot in the head. And died a few hours later. So, supposedly what I had read in one place was that Goebel saw a pistol in Sanford's right hand. Because supposedly he offered his left hand to the other men to shake. Okay. So, he... he like, he kind of, like, had yeah, it yeah, to the side hand, there. Yeah. And he was yeah. like, hi, how you doing? And so, Goebel had his own pistol with him. Goebel walked to the police station and turned himself in. <laughs> I shot Gonorrhea John. <laughs> he actually, according to what I read, he said, I suppose you heard what's happened. <laughs> Which, like, since he walked straight to the police station, Probably maybe not. not. And it, so, it was like the 1800s. I mean, so it was like, on fast. Twitter already. Gonorrhea John! Gonorrhea John! Hashtag Gonorrhea John! Gonorrhea John was trending in Kentucky. <laughs> Oh my god. Uh, see, I knew this. I knew when I got to this part, I was gonna, I was gonna get it. Ah. R.I.P. Gonorrhea John. <laughs> 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 oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
hashtag OMG. <laughs> so he, so Gobel, his brother. I mean, this like, oh my God. Okay, <laughs> Gobel, his brother, and the chief of police had a closed door session for two and a half hours. At the end of which, Gobel posted bond and went home. <laughs> He opened his mail throughout the preliminary hearing, and the judge dismissed the charges. Because <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> I mean, so no one actually knows who fired the first shot. Even the two guys who were standing there, no one knows. Oh. Okay. Uh, Stanford, okay, but it is clear that four, four things are clear. Stanford shot and missed, because there were tears in Goebbels' clothes, so we know okay. he... Though he knew who he was shot at. Goebbels shot and did not miss. No. <laughs> the courts obviously favored him. Oh, yeah. Which was going to continue, like, for a while. Well, I mean, it was gonorrhea, John. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, once you're gonorrhea, John, no one, <laughs> no one's going to, yeah. No one's going to care. And you're... his opponents now considered him a murderer. I mean, he was. Yeah. That's a very fair, <laughs> I mean, it's a fair assessment. Yeah. There's nothing incorrect about this. No. Um, dueling in Kentucky was not only illegal... But if you were and are still a public employee, you have to swear on oath that you haven't dueled. That's okay. part of Kentucky. Like, if you get a job Uh-oh. with state government, local government, you have to swear on oath. Even today? Joe had to when he worked as a pretrial officer. Oh, yeah. my. And Donna Naputi, the, my really, really, really good friend from uh, Maple Hill, she oh. worked as a court clerk, and she had to swear on oath. You haven't and, dueled, have yeah, you? Yeah, you haven't dueled. Uh, that is also going to be from a future episode. Okay. If anyone wants to look it up in advance, it's my own Kentucky home. It's that. Which we are going to talk about eventually. Um, okay. So, in 1898, Goebel proposed the Goebel election law. Uh, it superseded county election officials with a three-member state commission appointed by the General Assembly, and then that commission would choose the county election officials. It was seen by as a move by Goebel to consolidate his power. Because I figured, I feel like they figured at that point that he was going to... He was president pro tem of the Senate by this time, too. So I feel like everybody kind of knew he had like plans for yeah. bigger offices. So, in 1899, Goebel ran for governor, and here is some more uh, wonderful politicking on his part. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, the Democratic nominees were Goebel, a guy named Watt Harden. I don't know what what Watt is short for, but I don't know, Watt. Uh, Watt, Watt? Okay. And William Stone. Okay. So, at the party convention in Louisville, Watt, Watt seemed like the frontrunner. Uh, Goebel and Stone made an agreement that Stone would get uh, Goebel's supporters and Stone would allow Goebel the right to appoint some of the people he wanted onto the ticket. Hardin saw that Stone and Goebel had made an alliance, so he decided, I can't beat either one of them at this rate, so I'm out. So I'm out. <laughs> Goebel then broke the agreement that he had with Stone. Of course he did. Of course he did. Um, Harden re-entered the race, and on the next ballot, because they kept voting to see who, yeah. Yeah. So on the next ballot, the lowest vote-getter was going to be dropped, and that actually ended up being Stone. 
so his backers actually had to choose whether to, to support Hardin, who was seen as one of the railroad's men, like he was going to help them, or Goebel, who had screwed over their opponent, or their, their guy. Okay. So this made Goebel unpopular even amongst Democrats. So at this point... The Republicans think he's a murderer. Probably a lot of Democrats think he's a murderer. Well, everyone should can, think he's a murderer. Yeah, he is. <laughs> and plus, he's, like, screwing over, like, his opponent. Yeah. So. He screwed over someone that he made an alliance he's with. basically, like, yeah. He's, he's out for himself. Yeah. Douche. Yeah. So, the Republican actually beat Goebel in the general election, but the margin was only about 2,400 votes. Uh, the Democrats claimed that several Republican areas had voting irregularities, which they brought before Goebel's election board. Now, in a surprise move, the board ruled that the votes should count. Okay. Uh, so, the General Assembly then invalidated enough votes to give Goebel the election. <laughs> Republicans, naturally, were incensed. Um, the state was, at this point, close to civil war. Armed citizens, like, just poured into Kentucky from Republican strongholds, especially the eastern part of the state. That was the biggest. Um, so, on January 30th, 1900, there was a meeting to discuss the election outcome at the old capital, the old state capital, on, and uh, at this point, we're going to insert what Ron has to say, and then we're going to be back with ourselves here, and we're going to talk about the aftermath. Okay. Alrighty. We're standing here in front of the old state capitol in Frankfurt, and a friend of mine, a wonderful friend of mine named Ron, is going to tell us all about the assassination of Governor William Goebel, uh, kind of on the spot, as it were. So, here we go. Okay. Uh, need to hold anything? Or? Sure, why not? Okay. Uh, we're here on the, the street corner. The governor, or the, he was at the time contended election. Uh, he was coming across from the Capitol Hotel, which was down the street here, and came onto the old Capitol grounds. They were going to be a, uh, a meeting. Uh, they were contending the election. Uh, the Republican Taylor had been elected duly elected and was actually sworn in and was in sitting in office. But a bill called the Goebel Election Law, uh, which allowed the state legislature to oversee and actually gave them the power to overturn an election. So anyway, Goebel is coming up the, the walkway here and the government annex is over to our right. The Capitol is directly in front of us, and there is a portico or uh, breezeway that connects it to you. And it isn't there anymore. Yeah, like, the, the covered part the of covered it is, not, is not is not there. It, it is now open. And the governor was walking up, and back in those days, the walkway was a little bit wider than it is, is now. And he got up to a point where uh, they actually have a little plaque where he, he fell, and there was a couple of people standing on front of the Capitol building, and he raised his hand like he was waving, and his right hand, and then a shot rang out, and, and he fell, and he had a couple of bodyguards with him, and they just kind of like started looking around trying to see uh, where in the heck the shot came from. And one of them claimed that he saw 
a rifle barrel going back into a window on the lower uh, corner of the state annex, which would have been uh, Caleb Powell, Powers, Caleb Powers' uh, office. And he was the uh, Secretary of State for the Republican governor. Uh, and he was kind of the rising star within the Republican Party in the uh, Kentucky state at that time. Um, so they rushed Goebel back to the Capitol Hotel, which is a couple of blocks down the street here. That's a ways away. Mm -hmm. Wow. And uh, they were having difficulty. They found the exit wound, but they couldn't find where the bullet went in. Yeah. And that is because they were looking in the, the front of the, the chest, and the bullet had actually gone in through the side oh. under his armpit. When he and, was waving. And when he was waving, uh -huh. and had uh, hit a uh, bone and deflected and gone out the, the back. and It didn't go a straight course through wow. him. Jeez. Um, wow. So anyway, we head on up here a little bit. <clears throat> oh, the, the bullet did lodge in a hackberry tree that when I was a kid, the hackberry tree was still alive and still there. It has since died and the stump has all been removed. But uh, I, I remember that from just a little kid in the, the early 70s coming up here and I was thinking, oh, that's so neat. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to walk over here to the uh, what had been the covered breezeway uh, portico kind of thing. Now, at the time, in back of the street, in back of the Capitol and the annex, the building is still there, but at the time, it, and it's now home, but at the time it was a home and blacksmith shop. And there was an African-American blacksmith working there. And going up, walking up the sidewalk was a, a, just a, a Frankfurt citizen out on an eve, uh, morning stroll and both of them filed reports with the state police, separate, separate reports. They, they didn't, uh, they, they, their reports confirmed one another, but they hadn't uh, collaborated on it. And they both said that they heard the shot, they looked up, and they saw two well-dressed men carrying, one of them carrying a rifle, come running down, off the, jumped off the breezeway, ran across the backyard, of the Capitol building and jumped over the little, down onto the street, hopped into a horse-drawn carriage and sped up the street. Wow. Uh, Incredible. Later when the state police were getting ready to try to investigate this, uh, Goebbels' lieutenant governor, who at this time was now the governor of the state, told them to uh, not to bother with it, that it was unimportant, that they needed to focus on uh, finding the, the evidence to prove that Tyler or ta uh, the, gov the Republican governor or uh, Caleb Powers or one of those people were responsible. Wow. Holy moly. Yeah. And so, like, what was the atmosphere like afterwards? Well, it was uh, politically charged because of the debate. Uh, one of the reasons they, they Caleb Powers was such a a logical suspect was that he had gone back to the uh, mountains in eastern Kentucky, which was at that time the Republican stronghold in the state, and had recruited what was called the Mountain Army. And there's all these uh, people from the mountains came down here, and basically they had a, an armed camp uh, set up. Wow. Uh, and 
Uh, so tensions were running high, but the, uh, the police chief in Frankfurt at the time managed to get all of these guys to uh, stock their, their rifles so that they, while they were milling about, unless they had handguns, they, they didn't have their rifles and shotguns uh, with them. Wow. He, had, he managed to persuade them to do that. Then after Goble was shot, uh, and the uh, state legislature uh, was blocked from meeting here at the Capitol or in the annex, but they managed enough of them to meet in the Capitol Hotel to form a quorum to overturn the election results and swear Goble in as governor, and then just uh, while he was you know, severely wounded, and just oh a few God. days later, he passed away, and his uh, lieutenant governor, Beckham, was, was sworn in. Wow. At that time, uh, there's, the tensions were still running high. There were, uh, the armed people were here. There was fear of a, a massive attack. Gatlin guns were brought out and set onto the, the across the front of the Capitol building for, wow. for crowd control. Yeah. And again, when I was a little kid and the, the old Capitol was a, a museum that it was the most wonderful kind of museum. There was just all the stuff just piled in there. And you could just yeah. take. You could just take. <laughs> that is the most wonderful kind of. We, instead of having all these nice arty displays, it was just piled in there. And the Gatlin guns were still in there in the oh in the God. front room in the front hallway that you you came in, and and they were intimidating looking. Wow. Outdated technology as they were, they were still intimidating oh, yeah. looking oh, yeah. piece of equipment. Yeah. Wow. So a lot happened at the uh, Frankfurt Hotel then yes. right, too. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Um, and another thing to remember is that while all this was going on, this was a, a major, this wasn't just a little Kentucky event. This was a major news story that was uh, sweeping the nation and the, the world. There were reporters sent from British newspapers here wow. to, to cover it. Okay. Um, the newly elected vice president of the United States was sending uh, letters to the Washington Post, Cincinnati Inquirer, and, and all these other places uh, saying that it shouldn't allow the, the Democrats to steal the, the election, that the, the governor should stand firm. And, uh, and then a few short months later, President William McKinley is, is assassinated, assassinated by someone who may have been inspired by this event. Oh, God. And, uh, <laughs> and that, that letter-writing vice president became well, President Theodore Roosevelt. There you go. And... Uh, there were, wow. I found going back through uh, uh, the internet, letters to the editors written to Indianapolis, because Governor Tyler, when he fled the state, he fled to uh, Indianapolis and took asylum with uh, uh, the governor, uh, Mount, who was the governor of Indiana. Okay. And, and Beckham was trying to get him extradited back to Kentucky, and Mount refused to send him. <coughs> and there were people writing letters to the Indianapolis papers uh, fearing that that the Kentucky National Guard was going to to invade or try to stage a commando raid to kidnap him, and that the wow. Indianapolis or the Indiana in, the National Guard should be stationed along the, the river. Well, in in Frankfurt newspapers and there were letters to editors saying that that the governor, the Beckham, ought to send the Kentucky uh, National Guard into Indiana to get the guy. I mean, it was a very tense thing. Yeah. It it made national impact. It changed election laws all across the country, and, and it was a major event, like I say, not just for Kentucky, but for the nation, and then it's just kind of like been forgotten, 
and relegated like, to like so many just other like things so many other things that, that happened in Kentucky that were major factors yeah. but are now forgotten. Yeah. Because they happened in in a small yeah mid, upper south state. Right. Well, and like so many other things that like caused massive change. Like what actually caused the massive mm -hmm. change? All you remember is the change. You don't yep. remember the yeah. the cause of it. Yes. Wow. I mean, just standing here, like standing here, is to me a little bit eerie. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but because yeah, right up here is where, if the blacksmith and the other guy were correct and they did see somebody running back, this is the, the spot from where they would have fired yeah. the shot. That uh, hit gold. Like that window? Well, Maybe. it would have been the, uh, the window around front there. Around the front, but, okay. But if the two guys that were seen running away, if they had shot from the portico, they would have been standing here. Right here? Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's very... Uh. And uh, in the Kentucky Historical Society Museum, they have, or they did have on display... For many years, the uh, coat that Goebel was was wearing. Wow! And uh, then <coughs> the uh, there were some of the because a lot of the trials for the um, for Caleb Power and the others took place in Scott County. Huh? Oh, okay. And uh, did they feel like feeling was too hot, yes, running mm -hmm. too high here? But uh, Cantrell, who was the, the presiding judge, was a a uh, gobel man through oh, and through, good. so they, they really didn't get any breaks there. No, they didn't. <laughs> and, Clearly uh, no. <laughs> a, a lot of the evidence that was used in the trial apparently was still there, and I've read where at one time the, the Georgetown History Museum, which is located in the old post office in Georgetown, actually had uh, some one of the bullets that was thought to have been the bullet that, that was dug out of the hackberry tree. Oh, my gosh. But a year ago, when I went in there wow. to to inquire about it, uh, the, the manager of the thing had no clue as to what became of it. They did not have any any record of it, so that has apparently disappeared. Well, I mean, it's such a small thing. <coughs> mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. somebody could have pocketed that, it. You would exactly, never know. Yeah. God knows where it is now. Yeah. Or it's, or it could still be there. Mm -hmm. And, and the, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Just, it's just amazing standing yeah. here and thinking <laughs> about just really a gut, like really kind of a governmental coup attempt. Really, yeah, exactly, yeah. Because <laughs> that that is partly what uh, Goebel was doing with his, his election was, a, was overturning the uh, yeah. the, the a people's coup of a choice. Coup. Yeah, and. Uh, Wow. So, so question comes down to uh, who might have actually done it. Yeah. And there are a lot of, uh, one of Caleb Power's uh, assistants who uh, is thought to have actually been, perhaps been the trigger man, was, was mentally unstable. Oh, good. Well, that's and, what you uh, want. Or at least turned man. out during the course of the trials, basically had a nervous collapse. Oh, God. Whether he did it or not. The, uh, the case that the state brought was trying to say there was a conspiracy, but that guy was the trigger man, but that Caleb Powers was the brains behind it. Wow. Um, Caleb Powers was a very astute, very smart fellow. I really don't think he would have thought that there was any way 
assassinating Goebel would have benefited him or the, the state Republican Party in right. any way. Yeah. I, I, I really don't think he did it. This other guy, though, the one that they said was the trigger man, he very well, being a little bit on the uh, unstable side, he could very well have, have done it. Yeah. But, um, one gunman in it. But Goebel had been involved in, in feuds. He was a lawyer from Covington and had been involved in a duel and it actually oh, killed someone. Oh, fantastic. So there's always the possibility that uh, an enemy of his unassociated with his his political career yeah. could have taken the opportunity to get revenge. Yeah. And there's also, given the intensity of the uh, the feelings and the, the, the fear of, of, of combat, yeah. uh, that there is a possibility that... Um, anarchist may have actually wow. taken place because it was an anarchist who ended up shooting a William McKinley. McKinley yeah. And I know this sounds like an oxymoron, but there was a, a organized anarchist movement yeah. across the world. There, there were, at the time, yes, yes there was. There were numerous yeah. uh, heads of states, uh, the King of Spain, uh, prime ministers in yeah. Italy and, and other places who were... Well, what's uh, his face? Uh, Franz Ferdinand, later, Fran later mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. like a decade later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but so yeah, there was the yeah the bombing of uh, the king of Spain mm -hmm, on his exactly. wedding. Yes. Mm -hmm. The bride came back with like blood and brains on her wedding dress. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. See, yeah. I had never like I had thought of it as being a political thing. I had never like an anarchist thing had never occurred to mm -hmm. me. That's a fascinating theory. Because, and that's because uh, going back to the all these letters saying that the Indiana, Indiana ought to be ready for a Kentucky invasion and all this tension could have created the image that uh, this could be the, the trigger point to, to reignite the Civil War or start a new, oh new major sectional uh, crisis. And uh, that, exactly that they would have thought, okay, maybe we can do yeah. this. Maybe we can trigger this. And there's also another thing to, to take into consideration is that usually when police are doing an investigation, they want to know who would have profited right. from this. We who, don't who, know. who did profit <laughs> from this? And really, to my way I look at it, only one person stood to profit from, uh, from Goebbels' assassination. And only one person really did profit. Uh, let me profit. guess. Can I guess? You can, can guess. I guess, Professor? You can guess. Uh, Beckham? Yes. Thank you. Yes. The man who was his lieutenant governor. Wow. I be mean... Became governor. He served oh. out almost a full four-year term. And at this time, Kentucky still had its law that you could only serve one, one term. But at re-election time came up, he said that he was only filling out the term that someone else had been elected to. Yeah. Uh, therefore, he was eligible to run again, and so he did, and won re-election. So he becomes the only person to serve almost eight full years as governor until the law was overturned and Paul Patton was uh, elected twice. Twice. Wow. Back to back. Holy crap! That's insane. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. So. I mean, the <laughs> oh man, this is why history is so fascinating. Indeed, indeed. There's so many, there's so many things, so many possibilities, so many things could have happened and did happen. And <laughs> it's just incredible. Wow. Wow. 
If you're wondering about the silences, what it is is us staring out, looking at the mm. the state, the old state capitol yard, just thinking about like the past and how amazing yep. it would be. What, so if you had like if you had a time machine, I take it you would go back to the day. Yeah. The yeah. morning of. Yes, and <laughs> I would I would station myself somewhere back in here and and just to to look to see if what happens. Yeah. And when another thing I would I, I wish I would do, had the energy and the ambition to do, would be to go to the state police office and see if they still have somewhere in their archives the reports that were filed by the blacksmith and the other gentleman. Oh yeah, that would be and, fascinating. Uh, because I came across these in a book called That Kentucky Campaign, which was published during the the course while the trials were running their course. Oh wow! And. Uh, there's always the possibility that maybe this they, this was all a fabrication by an anti-Beckham person to make Beckham look bad. Right. And I would like to really uh, see if those still exist in state police offices or archives uh, to confirm whether or not that really, really happened. I, I feel like it did, but... And uh, as we look, stand here looking out across, you can see all these... Uh, buildings out across there those are all the buildings that would have been here at the time yeah uh, this has not uh, been subject to urban renewal yeah uh, and I mean, down the head of us I, you may not be able to see it because of that tree but the global statue yeah is down there yeah for, for many I, many years that stood in front of the um the new capitol building yeah and i can remember coming in school trips back when i was like in the fifth or sixth grade and it was still in front of the the um the new capital. Yeah. And there's also another big statue in the Frankfurt Cemetery at his actual grave site. Oh, wow. Maybe we should take a little drive yeah. through there. Okay. Um, I can't believe that that, I can't believe that that's the blacksmith shop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's just right. Yeah. It's kind of right across the street. Wow. Because at this time period, uh, Automobiles were just beginning to, and they were very unreliable, so still most people got around with horse and carriage, and uh, including assassins, obviously. Uh, assassins, <laughs> and my understanding is that this gentleman had, uh, uh, he did a lot of work for the state legislator people and stuff like that. He kind of like had the, the upper echelon yeah. market uh, for, for doing horsey work, buggy repair, and nice. things like that. Wow, it's incredible. So if you come to the Old State Capitol in Frankfurt, you are literally walking in the footsteps of not just Kentucky history, but American history as well. Yep. Wow. Okay, well, we're going to close this out now. Thank you, Ron. That Thank was you. You. amazing. <laughs> Thanks for being our first guest. Oh, fantastic. I know. Really honor. I mean... I don't know how honored you should feel. No one's listening, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I appreciate it. So, and we're back after Ron's uh, <coughs> telling us all about the actual assassination. Thanks, Ron. I mean, Twin hasn't actually heard that part yet, but <laughs> I'm just saying thank you anyway. Yeah. And I can yeah. thank him in person this weekend. Yeah, so. exactly. 
All right. So after the assassination, Taylor expected retaliation. He already was in the office. Like, he was already in office. Okay. Technically. So he surrounded himself with guards in the Capitol building. Well, actually, I think he might have been in the annex. But he surrounded himself with guards. Uh, and also, he provided them for his family in the governor's mansion, which I hope they hadn't unpacked. Um, he called for the legislature to meet in London, Kentucky, which was a Republican area. So some did go there, but not enough to actually form a quorum. And in the meantime, Democrats tried to meet in Louisville. So Coble, as he lay dying, was sworn in as governor. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, this, it just, it, yeah. So he ordered a proclamation dissolving the military body who'd been called to Frankfurt by Taylor. Because uh, he called in the militia. Uh, the leader of the militia ignored it because he was Republican. <laughs> <laughs> and that was William Goebbels' only act as governor. <laughs> Something that went nowhere. Yeah. He died on February 3rd, 1900. <laughs> You'll also enjoy this part. His last words were reported to be, tell my friends to be brave, fearless, and loyal to the great common people. However, uh, Irwin S. Cobb, who was a young journalist at the time, and he later became, like, he later became a very well-known in, like, the 30s and 40s um, columnist Mm -hmm. and newspaper man. And he was, he was William Randolph Hearst's highest paid employee for a while. Oh, He wow. was that well regarded. Okay. Um, he found himself, he just happened to be there, he found himself helping the doctors out and he wrote that Goebel had a meal and then he said, Doc, that was some damn bad oyster and those were his last words. <laughs> <laughs> I want that to be my last word. That's going to be on the tombstone. That was some damn, damn bad, bad oyster. oyster. <laughs> I know. It makes, when you go to Frankfurt, like, and you go up to, uh, like, in the cemetery, like, there's this huge, like, there's a huge statue of him that we saw in the Capitol, in front of the Capitol, on Capitol, but, um, do you know there's actually a movement now to replace, maybe replace Jefferson Davis's statue with his statue from the old Capitol? Really? Maybe. Somebody was talking about it on, I was like, okay. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that seems problematic in other ways, but whatever. Yeah. Um, but you drive up and you know how cemeteries are. They're winding and curving. Mm-hmm. But you go up and you see this huge statue. And it's got like things about him on the side. And it calls him the martyr governor and all that sort of stuff. And on one side is his supposed last word. And I just pictured, Doc, that was so <laughs> It's probably not that. <laughs> no. It probably it is, went with the nicer one. It is ones. the common people. Yeah. It is the, the, it is but the common, great common people. I like the sometime yeah. bad oyster one. All right. So Beckham, who was his running mate, was sworn in as governor. Uh, Goble was taken to Covington, then returned to Frankfurt for, a, for like a funeral via a circuitous route. Because his people wanted to avoid the Louisville and Nashville Railroad. Like, they went all over the place because they would not have put his body on an L&N train. Because God forbid. God forbid, yeah. Uh, so 200,000 people viewed his body at the Capitol Hotel, and then he was buried in the Frankfurt Cemetery in the midst of a violent rainstorm. 
Okay. Uh, after his death, believe it or not, well, you probably will, the tension in the situation actually seemed to go down. Oh, yeah. I can see that. <laughs> uh, leaders of both parties met. They seemed like they thought Beckham was actually maybe a nicer guy, although we actually speculate that maybe he was responsible for the assassination. Oh! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, leaders of both parties met. They agreed that Goebel had been elected governor and that the militia should be removed, uh, while the Democrats agreed that Republicans, any Republicans, would be granted immunity if they had shot him, and a fair and bipartisan election law would actually be enacted. And then there were some other things, but... Uh, the state legislature was still acting as two separate bodies, Democrat and Republican, and the governor would not sign any kind of uh, Taylor, that guy. <laughs> Taylor would not sign any kind of agreement saying he wasn't governor anymore. So the election then went before the courts. Uh, a circuit court judge agreed that Goebel had won. Republicans appealed. The appeals court agreed with the lower court. Then the Republicans wanted to bring it before the Supreme Court, but the justices refused to hear the case. So the election was finally over, and Beckham was now officially governor. Uh, so Taylor, now that Beckham was governor, uh, he actually feared that he was going to be arrested. Oh. Because he thought that people were going to, like, assume that he had had at least something to do with it. Yeah. And they did. <laughs> so he uh -huh. fled to Indianapolis. Uh, the governor there refused to extradite him to Kentucky, which this has been the second time that has happened that we talked about. Because we talked about the guy in the got shot at the golf house. Yeah. And his, like... Like that Unigen, one Unigenal shot another one. He ref he went to Indianapolis, and the governor there refused to turn him over. So anyway, Taylor spent the next twenty eight years practicing law in Indianapolis till he died. Oh. So the search for the assassin began. Uh, the first person arrested was a man from Butler County, where Taylor was from, and his name was Holland Winterker. And although he was heavily armed, it soon became apparent that he was not responsible. Before it was all over, 20 people were accused, 16 were indicted, 3 became prosecution witnesses, and uh, 5 went on trial. Oh. Yeah. Uh, because of the evidence that the shooting took place from the window of Caleb Powers' office in the annex next to the old Capitol, suspicions focused on him and other Republicans. Caleb Powers at that time had been elected the Secretary of State. For Kentucky, and he was a Republican. Uh, on March 9th, 1900, a guy, and I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, it's either Yutsi or Diyoutsi. It's Y-O-U-T-S-E-Y. Okay. So Yutsi Yautsi, he was a clerk in the auditor's office, and he was arrested. And after that, warrants were issued for uh, Caleb Powers and a guy named Jim Howard. And he has kind of an interesting background, too. That was why I sent you that thing Sunday. Uh, other people were charged, but those three were the ones who went on trial. Uh, Powers tried to escape and was stopped in Lexington. And he had a pardon signed by Taylor for giving him for, oh. for, giving him for any involvement in Goebbels' murder. Uh, Taylor himself was, in fact, indicted, but he was never charged. 
the trials were extremely irregular, and Ron wants to have an episode where we just talk about the, uh, the, the like the trials okay. and how crazy they were. Uh, so, the judge James Cantrell was a Democrat. The juries, like the jury, oh, I think there's someone at the door. Possibly. We'll be right back. Got it. So the jury was made up mostly of Democrats, all of the juries, and there were many of them until the end. Um, the, the judge did grant a change of venue to Georgetown. But even there, the county attorney, the sheriff, they were Democrats, and they determined who would get picked as progressive, as pro, prospective jurors. Um, the prosecution, I'm not sure why I wrote that note, but it's all right. The prosecution uh, claimed that Powers had brought the Mountain Army in to intimidate and even kill legislators, and they claimed that Powers had given Yutzi Yautzi the key to his office. Hmm. So that Yutzi could shoot, or someone could shoot Goble, while he, Powers, was elsewhere and had an alibi. Uh, so three of his aides turned state's evidence to testify against him. We learned about state's evidence. <laughs> our first in episode. Our first episode. Yeah. Oh, and the prosecution actually also included an attorney who was hired by the Goebel brothers out of Cincinnati. Um, so it wasn't just like uh, the still like the prosecution that was actually there. It was also an extra attorney, high, like a highfalutin guy from Cincinnati. Um, so his defense attorneys showed that at least one of the witnesses had committed perjury and another one confessed that the prosecution and Arthur Goebel, who was one of William Goebel's brothers, had told him he would go to the state penitentiary for life if he didn't testify against Powers. Oh. So, yeah. Uh, other evidence was introduced uh, to corroborate Powers' story, but uh, the summation for the jury by the judge left no doubt about where his opinion lay. <laughs> um, less than an hour later, the jury came back with a guilty verdict, and Kayla Powers, Kentucky's uh, Secretary of State, was sentenced to life imprisonment. Oh. Uh, the next trial was of Jim Howard, and he had been uh, a participant in the Baker-Howard feud in Clay County. So that's like one of the Eastern Kentucky feuds that we'll probably talk about. Ooh. Uh, I read somewhere where up to 200 people have possibly been killed in this feud. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. Um, and Democrats believe that Jim Howard was actually the trigger man. Uh, and, but he said that he was at Frankfurt that day to get a pardon from Governor Taylor uh, in regards to the feuding. Okay. Like some things he had done then. He was, said he was in a hotel when Goebel was shot, had nothing to do with the killing. Uh, the prosecution brought up the fact that Howard had been involved in that feud, and they brought forth five witnesses who claimed that he had admitted to them that he had committed the assassination. 
Uh, once again, the judge was Cantrell, and the jury selection was even more biased than in the last trial of Caleb Powers. At Powers' trial, there were 10 Democrats and two Republicans. At this one, there were 11 Democrats and one Republican. Oh, God. So this time the jury took half an hour to find him guilty, and he got the death penalty, being as how he was supposedly he was, the trigger he was man. The, yeah. So the next trial was that of Henry Yutzi. Yutzi. I'm just going to call him Henry. Um, Cantrell was once again the judge, and the jury was once again mostly Democrats. So Yutzi, Henry, was from a good family, but he was also pretty unstable. Uh, Arthur Goebel took the stand and testified that, that Henry admitted that he was guilty. Henry jumped up and yelled, That's a lie. I hope God will kill me if I ever said a word to that man or he to me. Uh, the judge ordered him to sit down. Henry refused. Then he proclaimed, There is no blood on my hands, not a particle. I want everybody to see it. I am innocent. Okay. <laughs> per James, hands up. See my no blood. All right. Per, um, then I'm just going to quote this from James Clotter's book because, um, yeah, I, there's no way I can best this, this description, I don't think. Um, as deputies tried to restrain him, Yutzi fell to the floor. He sobbed and shouted, seemed to faint, and could not be revived. Oh, okay. Yeah. He was brought into the courtroom on a cot every day after this, and he lay insensate. Oh, my God. And this trial went pretty much like the other two. Uh, in under an hour, Henry was found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment. Uh, he recovered from having all of these things happen in a couple of days, and he admitted that he had faked a lot of it because he said he didn't know what else to do. <laughs> so okay, when in doubt, go cat talk. Yeah, yeah, really. Okay, I mean, I mean, um, it seems legit. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it clearly it worked. Worked sort not of, not really, really. But <laughs> I mean, he didn't get the death penalty, so there's that. I guess. Um, only two of the three, Powers and Howard, appealed their sentences. Uh, when the appeals reached the Court of Appeals, it had become a majority Republican court, so of course they looked at what happened in the lower court and granted new trials. Um, so this kept happening as a cycle. Powers had three more trials and Howard had two. Oh, God. It took the prosecutor, whose name was Campbell, dying, and Judge Cantrell, Cantrell being promoted to the Court of Appeals itself, actually, <laughs> for Powers and Howard to be acquitted. Uh, once they got a new judge and once they actually got, like, a fairly balanced jury, like, even the Democrats were like, we don't think this guy actually did it. Um, so in June 1908, a Republican governor, whose name was Gus Wilson, pardoned Powers and Howard, saying that he thought Henry acted alone. And a year later, Governor Wilson pardoned six other men, including ex-Governor Taylor, who was governor, they said, for, like... 30-some days. I mean, not as short as Goebel, who no. was governor for four, three, something like that. Yeah, four. But um, in 1916, uh, Henry was actually paroled oh. from prison. And in 1919, he too was given a full pardon by a Democratic governor. So, oh, wow. uh, yeah, an opposing governor. There is still no answer to who shot Governor Goebel, and there probably never will be. 
happened um, so yeah. long ago. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's hard to explain how deeply this affected the state at the time because it's so, like, kind of far away. Um, Samuel, Samuel Hopkins Adams, who was a famous journalist of the day, actually said this, and this is a quote. How deeply the bitterness of the Goebel killing has entered into the life of Kentucky no outsider can fully realize. The animosities engendered by it have brought about literally scores of fatal quarrels. Business partnerships have been dissolved. Churches, churches have been disrupted. Lifelong friendships have been withered. Families have been split. There is no locality so remote, no circle so closely knit as to escape the evil influence. At the capital of the state, people dare not talk freely about it. Oh, my. Yeah. Um, but Ron talks in, the, in there about how, like, there were actually, like, Gatling guns and things on the lawn of the, the old capital and stuff. Okay. I mean, it's, it was hardcore. Yes, I yeah. like <laughs> So, in the end, Goebel was considered a democratic martyr. Uh, he did not get to put forward the reforms he'd wished for, and they actually happened later under other governors, many of them actually Republicans themselves. Oh. Yeah, so, um, and today he's barely remembered. There's a statue of him in front of Kentucky's old Capitol and a plaque where he fell. Yep. And uh, there's a tr street in Elkton and a park in Covington named after him. And that's oh. the story of Kentucky's first and only assassinated governor and the nation's actually only first assassinated uh, the nation's first and only assassinated sitting governor alright yeah awesome I know not awesome I mean <laughs> it's like I mean it is one of those things that like only in Kentucky and most people don't know about it I asked Ron like if he thought it was uh, one of those things that people actually knew anything about yeah that he um that this happened, and he was like, no, he didn't think it I don't, was. I'd never heard of yeah. it until we went and saw the yeah. statue, which so. we'll be posting pictures of on our Instagram. Yeah. And which, which, our Instagram is at KeepyKentucky. So is our Twitter. Yeah. And our email is KeepyKentucky at gmail.com. Feel free and to send us any oh, ideas. Oh, yes, please. Ideas. If you want to just say hello. Yes. We're lonely people. We, we like are. hearing from, from people. Yes. We like any kind of validation. Yes. <laughs> so, like, anything. Yes. Anything. Yes. Uh, also, uh, we might as well just start putting Ron at the end of every episode. We may as well. Yeah. So, Ron Duncan is our historical advisor. Yes, he is. Yeah. <laughs> and, and much, much appreciation always, as always, goes out to him. And thanks for listening, and maybe by next week we may have an interesting cryptid story, depending on how things go. Yeah. Yeah, this weekend. Yeah. We're, we're planning a trip, guys. So, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. If not, we'll come up with something oh, for you. Oh, we'll come you. up with something for you. Don't you worry about that. Um, don't, you, don't you fret there. Don't worry, guys. Yeah. With that, Kentucky. What, what the, the hell? hell? <laughs> <laughs>